Welcome to the Vocation and the Common Good podcast. I'm your host, Philip Lorish. Today, my guest is Dr. James Davison Hunter, Director of the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture and Professor of Social Theory at the University of Virginia. We're here today to talk about his 2010 work, To Change the World, and the possibilities for Christians to express faithful presence in the modern world. I hope you enjoy our conversation. My God, my God, where I go, glory, where I reap and where I sow, glory, and my hands they grip the thorns, glory. Let's start at the very beginning, James, which is the very beginning of this book, which says, For Dogwood. I think you are committed to the idea that all the best thought actually emerges out of friendship. How did the development of the argument for it to change the world actually emerge? How is it an expression of friendship? I had been asked to give a lecture to the board of the Trinity Forum. I had known Oz Guinness for decades at that point, and I knew the people at Trinity Forum. And anyway, I was asked to give a talk to the board of directors. I knew something about the organization, and I knew that these were all very well-intended people with resources, and they were generous people. But I also knew enough about the organization to know their aspirations and their strategy were not connected. These were people who wanted to change the world. They want to make it better. But their model for changing the world didn't match up. So I said to myself, I will never be with this many rich people ever again in my life. I'll never see them ever again in my life. I've got a shot. I've got an opportunity to say something and maybe get their attention. And so basically I laid out an argument that acknowledged their good intentions, but that the model that they are following to achieve their noble and worthy goals couldn't accomplish what they want to do. So, And that became Essay 1. It was the sketch for Essay 1. And I thought the speech went very well. I put a lot of work into it. A good discussion followed But I didn't think they were really understanding what I was saying. But the next morning, one person came up to me and said, James, this is what I think I heard. And he laid out the argument in a kind of vernacular. And I said, you got it. And he said, well, if that's true, then this is really revolutionary. I said, yeah, that's right. It is. They did the CD of the lecture. It went viral. Nothing of my work has ever gone viral more quickly I had struck a nerve. How did you know it went viral? I was getting emails, calls, notes, letters, and then I was being asked to speak and to essentially give the same lecture again and again and again. And there was a group that's now called CARDIS in Canada. They used to be called the Work Research Foundation, but they took me on a speaking tour in major capitals around Canada. And I noticed a pattern that there was a lot of intrigue, there was a lot of pushback, but it was mostly a kind of hunger and a searching This sounds right, but what does it mean? The other part of the response was, and I was getting this not only in the verbal response from the audience, but also I was seeing it playing out online and literature that was developing. Oh, this is a much more sophisticated strategy for taking over. So I was seeing the politicization of this. And it was at that moment I realized the speech wasn't enough. I had to spin this out. I had to write it up because the whole point of this was not about conquest. Mm -hmm. This was about something else. Well, it was in the wake of that lecture that a number of people who I had known, who were friends, 
sort of ramping up a conversation with me. And, and um, making it more intentional and structured? Yeah. And a group of friends who represented different vocational spaces. There were pastors, there were business people. I was the academic. And we started meeting. We would meet three times a year, four times a year. Jim Seneff, it was Don Flo, Tim Keller, Skip Bryan, and myself. We became close friends. We would have the best conversations. And oftentimes those conversations were about this. At that point, I had pulled the trigger, decided I was going to write this up. And so it was in these conversations that I would share some of what I was thinking, learning. I would get feedback. It was incredibly rich and shaping of the argument for me. And then out of that, I was also introduced to a number of other pastors, John Yates Sr., his son John Yates, who were also students of mine at UVA, Corey Widmer, but a whole network of their friendships met on a couple of occasions. They read material and were providing feedback as well. So So in my judgment, this is a sort of book that is as much about creating a sort of space for that next generation of pastoral leaders or church leaders or business leaders or artists, folks who are trying to discern what love requires of them in this particular moment. The objective seems to be to clear space, which involves some clearing of taking out invasive species or whatever else and creating a a sort of area that can be fertile for growth. It strikes me when I went back and reread To Change the World not too long ago, that there is an asymmetry. There's a missing chapter, the last chapter of the third essay. That's intentional, I assume. So tell me, does it feel incomplete? Is it lacking something? Or does it feel like it needs more? Well, look, I'm a historical and cultural sociologist. I think the book is strongest there. It also is theological. It's not as strong. It also has biblical Mm -hmm. teaching. It's weaker there. And then there is the final part, which is, you know, very practical, and it's probably weakest at that point, and that reflects my own vocational bias. But there's also a biographical part of this. I'm a Christian believer as well, and I had never written a book for a Christian audience. Mm-hmm. I hadn't really spoken to Christian audiences very much. It's not what I do day to day. But so much of what I have done over the last, you know, at that point, 20-some years, I guess— is to try to figure out what it means for me to Mm -hmm. be a Christian and the institution where I work and the models of having written extensively on the culture wars. And I know myself well enough to know that I'm not a culture warrior, (laughs) Uh, but I'm also not a pietist in the sense of being a dualist about these things, that faith is over here and work is over here and never the twain shall meet. For all of my flaws, faith is the central part of my life. And the question was autobiographically, what does it mean for me? I did the best I could with this argument. But at the end, the first essay has seven chapters. The second essay has seven chapters. The third essay only has six chapters. What I was trying to signal is that the seventh chapter of of the third essay needs to be written. I had some sense of what that meant for me in the academic space, but I had no idea what it would mean for people in their vocational spaces. And it seemed to me that that is the kind of thing that has to be worked out in fear and trembling on one's own knees. And what I was desperately trying to avoid was one being the kind of answer man, which you find all too often in the Christian world and quite frankly in our therapeutic world, the five easy steps to faithful presence. 
I don't think there are five easy steps to faithful presence. And again, even if there were, it would look different in different spaces. And I simply have no authority to speak to those other vocational spaces. The other part was that that plays to a certain celebrity model of leadership. Everyone wants you to come and to answer the questions, what does faithful presence look like? And I find that form of leadership inherently corrupting. So I wanted no part of that. So I didn't write the seventh chapter. And yet I also knew at that point, I mean, particularly once the book came out, I knew that that was just really a gaping hole because literally everyone in a lot of public speaking after this, I got an enormous volume of email and people saying, this book has changed my life. I completely get it. But what does it mean for me? Where do I go? What do I do? What does it look like? And I'm sitting there scratching my head. I, I'm sorry, I can't tell you. Yeah, did you develop a sort of auto-response to that? Well, <laughs> I mean, a sense of what academics at their best are gifted in doing is clarifying concepts and yeah. sort of clearing away brush and saying... Yeah. Creating that clearing that you yeah, mentioned earlier. Yeah. that this feels like a suggestive possibility, but you're going to have to occupy this space as best as you can, and I can't tell you what to do. So analytically, faithful presence made sense to me. Theologically, it made sense yep. to me. Biblically, it made utter sense to me. Yep. But practically, I just didn't know how to answer the question. And so it wasn't very long after the publication of To Change the World that I sketched out on a yellow pad, how would I answer that question? And it became clear to me that what we need are social scientists who are trained in understanding the nature of our moment in conversation with reflective practitioners and people who are biblically and theologically sophisticated. I looked at the literature on vocation, and there is a voluminous amount of literature out there about what it means to be a Christian at work, but very little of it made any sense to me because what it means to be a Christian in the academy looks different from what it means to be a Christian in healthcare or what it means to be a Christian in a law office or in retail or vocationally there are these different spheres. So no one works a generic job and yet all the literature is oriented toward a kind of generic understanding of labor. And that doesn't make sense to me. And it feels like basic Christian virtue should cover all those things. There's a level of specificity that's mm -hmm. lacking if you just talk about work mattering and being a Christian in your workplace. Right. Christian virtue should apply whether you're at work or not. The question is, what are the specific challenges that you have if you're in healthcare or whatever else? Well, there's another part of it too. And that is that what it means to be a Christian nurse mm -hmm. or a Christian physician now looks very different from what it looked like 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. So the, the other characteristic of this literature was that it hadn't been historicized. Mm -hmm. The third weakness of this literature from my vantage point was that the literature was oriented toward faithfulness for the Christian individual. Mm-hmm. I don't know anyone who works by themselves, mm -hmm. completely by themselves. And even if they do, they're in conversation with contemporaries who may not be physically present, mm -hmm. predecessors who have existed in the past. Our vocations are inherently social mm -hmm. and collective. 
the meaning of those vocations only makes sense in the context of the particularities of the moment, of the particularities of the work itself, and of the particularities of the social and collective community that surrounds it. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean to be a faithful Christian in one's work? The challenges to that faithfulness, and they're always challenges. Well, we have to understand those against the particularities of a time and a place and a vocational calling. So that was really the origin of it. It was wanting to provide an answer to or to write chapter 7, knowing that I'm incapable of doing that. I don't have the competencies or knowledge. But um, knowing that it has to take shape in a conversation with people who are much smarter than I am about those things mm-hmm. in those contexts. So, so Vocation and the Common Good, the project is a first attempt at chapter 7. It is, yeah. yeah. The idea behind it was to find vocational spaces that represent different parts of the common good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Prosperity, knowledge, health, beauty, sort of the range of things. Not that it would be the definitive answer for all of those spaces, but it would at least get the conversation going in each of those spaces. There was an emphasis on the disproportionate role of leaders, leaders of institutions, of organizations, of networks, people that tend to stand at some sort of decision point of what a small society or large society may make of itself. That's been an abiding concern of yours. How do you respond to criticism that that leaves out the sort of every man? Well, let me respond by making a couple of points. One is that the emphasis on, first of all, I use the word elites, but the emphasis on elites has to do with our understanding of the nature of the worlds that we inhabit and how they change. Elite is simply a social science concept, and unfortunately it gets conflated with the word elitism. And I'm very specific in numerous moments in the book that to be a leader or an elite is something very different from elitism. And in fact, they push in opposite directions. My sense is that Christ reserved his greatest condemnation for those leaders who were elitist, who practiced elitism, because elitism is rooted in exclusion. The whole nature of the culture of elitism is about leaving people out. Christ, in his own body and flesh, his own presence, obviously he is God incarnate. He he is a leader, but he demonstrated the very opposite of what leaders often do and what leaders should do. So Leaders are just critically important for the shaping of culture, shaping of worlds. If we deny that, we are denying the reality of the way our world works and the way in which worlds change. So if we have any interest in world changing, we have to pay attention to leaders and to leadership. Otherwise, we are, in fact, in denial. Secondly, we need a proper understanding of what leadership is. And it seems to me that leadership is not absolute, It is always relational. In a family, a mother is an elite. She has leadership over her children. In a construction site, there are people who have leadership over others. 
So we are not talking about an absolute value. There are leaders and there are non-leaders. There are elites. There are non-elites. We are all leaders in various social settings. The question is, what do we do with the kind of leadership influence that we have? That's the fundamental question. You can be on a construction site and see the abuse of power. You can see it in families, the abuse of power over children or a husband over a wife. The question is what you do with the power that you have, the influence that you have. And my argument to change the world is that leadership bears the burden of faithful presence. That is, the burden of leadership is the burden of those who have less than you. That is the burden you bear. And the more influence you have, the more power you have, the more leadership you have, the heavier that weight is. So if we're not dealing with leaders and elites in these various spheres, first of all, we're dealing with everyone. So it models it for everyone. But in some respects, if it can't work with sort of the highest echelons of leadership, it's not going to work further down. Why do we seem to be so inarticulate about power? Not just within the church. Generally speaking, most cultural conflict now, the easiest way to gain the upper hand is to be the first and most aggrieved party that's fundamentally disempowered. So if you can claim the most disempowerment, it's warranted for you to have the most leverage over an argument that's understood only as a certain type of inherently conflictual, zero-sum, one of us is going to win and the other is going to lose type thing. But we seem to be inarticulate about what power is generally and therefore are afraid to admit when it's been genuinely abused and also afraid to challenge the disempowerment narratives that come across. It just feels like we're confused about the concept. Yeah, we are absolutely confused about the concept. And you know, not to be too academic, but one of the legitimate gifts that post-structuralism offered us was a recognition that everyone has power. Even the powerless have power. Mm-hmm. No one is without power. And again, even those who claim to have no power exercise it. So it's not a zero-sum game. That's the first thing to say. Secondly is that there are different kinds of power. And I find that power at its root is the power to define reality of what is, what isn't, what's good, what is bad, what's right, what's wrong. Naming. It's naming. It's the power to name things, to name the world. And, um, and that's disproportionately held. So in a way, the most powerful form of power is cultural power. It's the power to name things. But that's not just a capacity held by scholars though it is held by scholars and pastors and others, knowledge workers, if you will. Cultural power is infused by those who are in business and who are Mm -hmm. in philanthropy and who are in medicine. They are constantly naming the world in certain ways. And we live in a world in which that naming, in my view, increasingly dehumanizes. So in the Christian world, uh, we have a long legacy of having this ambivalent relationship to power. And in my view, Christians know what to do with a lot of power, and they know what to do with no power. But in a pluralistic world in which the Christian community is one among many, 
which is the world we live in, they don't know what to do. And so they are either pushing toward conquest, which is mm-hmm. to have amass a lot of power, naming power to themselves, or claiming that they have no power, whatever, that they are aggrieved, they are victims, and use that kind of logic toward, as I say in the book, a narrative of injury that gives them the right, at least as following that logic, to seek revenge. So conceptually, we can understand the options. We can recommend one. It feels like faithful presence is always going to be understood in contrast to other alternatives. Yeah, right. And other alternatives are going to be more or less appealing based on any number of factors. So where are we now? So Christianity in America has been on this long trajectory from a position of operating within the centers of cultural power and political power and economic power to the margins. And there are markers along the way. The story of Christianity in America can be told in some respect as the history of that move from the center to the margins, to the periphery. And that's a really interesting story to tell. The history of Christian higher education is the story of being all of higher education when Harvard and Yale were founded, to the rebellion against the secularization of Harvard and Yale, to the founding of the Christian college world, the Wheatons, the Gordons, Taylors, and so on, in the mid to the end of the 19th century as a pushback against, okay? They sense their own marginalization, but we're going to hold the ground here. That, that story has been told by historians in various ways, but it's clear that that self-consciousness has become more and more acute, particularly since the late 1970s, early 1980s, when evangelical Christianity was certainly a cognitive minority at that point, but still a socio-behavioral majority. Its view of the family, its view of sexuality, its view of intimacy, of the importance of the church and so on, was still largely embraced by the mainstream. But it was clear that that socio-behavioral majority was being challenged. That story has been told. I think I've told the story uh, in print. But to make a long story short, what happened is that through the last three and a half decades, conservative Christians, evangelicals as well as conservative Catholics, essentially chose a political strategy to deal with a cultural problem, the problem of being marginalized from the power of naming the world. And they chose unwisely. Progressives essentially were operating both politically as well as culturally, but they won the cultural battle. Conservative Christians were fighting it politically, that cultural battle politically, and they lost. And it seems to me that the moment of loss was in the wake of the 2004 election, 2008. It's in that time period. I had an opportunity to go to the White House and to meet with President Bush, and I had a chance to have lunch with Karl Rove. And I said, did you use the Defense of Marriage Act as a way of getting out the vote? I said, was it, in fact, that deliberate? And he said, yeah. And it worked. And it did. President Bush was reelected. 
And it would not have worked in 2012. It would not have worked yep. in 2012. But then you also had the moment in which Sarah Palin comes on Saturday Night Live and does a self-parody. And you think of another moment when William Jennings Bryan, who had, was Secretary of State, he was a highly regarded statesman, took on the Scopes trial using all of his visibility, his stature, and was utterly ridiculed by H.L. Mencken and others. But the idea that Mencken would self-parody, you have in a way the, the Christian right cresting at that moment. It has as much political power as it ever is gonna have. And from that moment, you're seeing the rise of a certain kind of anti-clericalism, mm -hmm. which we've never seen before. So we see this kind of lurch mm -hmm. from the periphery to the extreme periphery. Mm -hmm. Culture is essentially a script. In the vernacular, that's what culture does. It provides a certain kind of logic and a certain vocabulary for making sense of the world. And the dominant script for conservative Christians, both Catholic and evangelical, was um, at this point a script of self-recognition of having been pushed mm -hmm. out into the margins and a resentment against the injury they were sustaining. As a consequence, that has to be oriented towards some. And it has always been oriented towards secular humanism and toward liberals, quote-unquote. My sense is that they will at one point be nostalgic for the days of secular humanism <laughs> because right. of what I think is coming down the pike. Right. Well, tell me about that then. The Enlightenment was an intellectual revolution unfolding in the 17th, 18th, spilling into the 19th century, the democratic revolutions of, of Europe and the United States were the political manifestations of that cultural, intellectual revolution. But what was it? The Enlightenment was a rewriting of the Christian narrative in a secular language. It was essentially the same teleology of Christianity and Judaism, but now in a secular that's what progress was. It was this view of human history moving toward the kingdom of God. That's what essentially Marx did in the Communist Manifesto, was to articulate a picture of human progress that would take us to communism, which for him was a utopian vision. And there were different versions of that secular utopia, but all of it was a rewriting of the Christian and Jewish narrative of the kingdom of God, but here on earth. One very powerful and important part of the Enlightenment was Romanticism. And Romanticism was essentially an attempt to retain Jewish and Christian ideas of virtue and of morality and of ethics, but without its creedal roots. That's what it was. That's what Whitman was about and Emerson. It was what Dewey was all about trying to preserve the Christian ethos of morality, of dignity, of respect, of toleration, of essentially love, but again, without the creedal roots that Judaism and Christianity provided. We are now, and part of the point of to change the world was to argue that we are in a new moment. And that new moment is that we are not only in a post-Christian world, we are increasingly in a post-liberal, 
post-humanist, post-enlightenment moment. What that means is that we're no longer, the larger world around us is no longer trying to rewrite that Christian narrative in a secular language. It's given that up, in part because the enlightenment itself was infused with contradictions and infused with inconsistencies. It couldn't sustain itself. And so, so much of intellectual life has been this attempt to sustain that Enlightenment vision and seeing it fall apart. And in the last 50 years, the history of intellectual life, of the cutting edge of intellectual life, has been a recognition that the bottom has fallen out, that it cannot be sustained. Well, intellectuals could play that game. They could deconstruct the human the text. They could deconstruct progress. They could deconstruct pretty much the entire Enlightenment project so long as there were people out there, ordinary people, who still believed it. Right. Even if they did carry guns and were deplorable. As long as there were ordinary people who believed in that project, that hard work paid off, that truth matters, that being honest and caring mattered. Intellectuals could pretty much do their own thing. Well, the problem is that the deconstructive project of intellectuals of the last 40 to 50 years has now percolated into the larger public. Now everyone is a skeptic. Everyone is a cynic. No one believes that there really is a truth out there. We are in a post-truth world. Science has been deconstructed. Religion and religious authority has been deconstructed. The media has been deconstructed. No one takes them seriously anymore. Obviously, scholars have no compelling universal authority. Who does? No one. So, you know, in the Enlightenment moment, it was what would replace the magisterium, what would replace the Torah, what would replace the Bible would be science, would be reason. It's gone. That's the trajectory that yeah. we're on. But my point is, you asked the question about yeah, yeah. what's happened in the last yeah, seven yeah. years. Well, I think there has been this lurching further to the margins. Mm -hmm. Sort of their own identity and position has been, continues on that trajectory outward. But the other thing that's happened within the larger culture is that the cynicism of scholars, of intellectuals who are trained to deconstruct, to analyze, and, and so on, has been pushed down, now everyone. And out of that is the kind of reduction of our political life of power after power. Naming persists, though, right? right. It's just a naming of force rather than persuasion somehow. That's right. And what happens in the vocational space is the logic of our vocations is increasingly dominated by what I would call instrumental power. Right. In which humane values, the care for our neighbor, our fellow worker, and so on, is rapidly disappearing. The very nature of the professions, historically, was that the professions were defined and given status precisely because they served a common good. It was not only about expert knowledge that no one else had. 
It was about the commitment of that vocation to serve, to serve the common good. That seems to be lacking in, say, Silicon Valley, largely. Well, and increasingly in law, obviously, yep. and yep. in the academy, yep. in, in every sphere. An elder statesman of the faith and work movement in a meeting that you and I attended said that in large part, the two commitments of the 1980s and 90s, and he was speaking on behalf of the evangelical church, that they um, had committed to two projects. One was the moral majority, which we've discussed. The other was the megachurch. And the next sentence was, from this elder statesman, was each of these are obvious failures. And the question is, what can emerge in the rubble of these failures? So I don't think we've solved the moral majority question. So let's take a stab at the Christian formation, the worshiping question. How it is that we both retain a certain type of particularity, right? form ourselves, form our families, form our local communities in the sort of patterns of the gospel, and yet do not become somehow subcultural or buy into some narrative that causes us to extract ourselves from a world which is decaying, does feel fragmented, feels fundamentally destabilized in every possible venue and frame of reference. So what should the church be doing? What should the church be doing to form us for this task? What we need to do is to love better. I argue that the theology and practice of faithful presence is a theology and practice of incarnation. And the model, of course, is Christ himself. God became incarnate in Christ. He was fully and faithfully present to us. And... He did so not because we chose him, but because he chose us. He took initiative. He reached out. He became present to us. That is the model of a kind of sacrificial giving of ourselves. We do this first and foremost to God in worship. We do it in our work. God calls us to work. We have to work. We need to work. Whatever it is, it is sacred because of, of um, we do it in that self-sacrificial way and we do it to God and therefore we do it with excellence. And because it is animated by love, we devote ourselves to it, to honor God, not as an idolatry, which it can become. But we also do that to be fully and faithfully present to our neighbor. And our neighbors are oftentimes not just the people who live in the house next door to us, but those that we work with and those that we encounter in our labor. So to love God, to love our work, to love our neighbor means that we are fully and faithfully present to our work and to our sphere of influence, whatever that happens to be. That by its very nature is particularistic. We can't love generically. That's... it. We just can't do that. So we have to do that within the particularities of our community. And to me, this is an opportunity for the church to rediscover itself. You've mentioned two of the great flaws of the last 50 years, the, the politicization of Christian faith, but also the megachurch movement. But the other great flaw of the last half century has been the parachurch movement. And it's done a lot of good, and I don't want to disparage the good work that has been accomplished there. But the parachurch movement essentially replaced the parish, the local congregation, 
for many, many people. It became a substitute. We are at a moment in which the parachurch phenomenon has helped create the fragmentation. It has created artificial communities. It has weakened the church itself. Also, in the kind of environment that we live in, the parachurch movement has been highly politicized. So this is a moment in which the theology and practice of faithful presence could provide a new script, an alternative script that would help us rediscover not only our vocations individually and collectively, but most importantly and foundationally, the local congregation itself. Because without that, we are not going to be forming young people, sending people out, which is what the church is supposed to be doing, mm -hmm. into construction, mm -hmm. nursing, education, art, music, mm -hmm. technology, and so on. Yeah, fragmentation goes all the way down. You know, we're 500 years on from Mr. Luther, and it seems that, generally speaking, we're all Protestants now in yeah, terms right. of our self-selecting into ever smaller groups of identification. And the parachurch movement has, I think, unwittingly encouraged that very thing. And accelerated it. Yeah. So church isn't working for me, therefore I either dispense with it altogether or just find another place. Right. You were early on identified new forms of coalition building across different denominational lines. We've talked a lot about evangelicals, which is a term that's obviously contested and means as many things as beer means now. <laughs> but one of the things I have wondered is if you see any issue in our culture that will force a realignment of coalitions, does it feel like there's anything in the water that is going to cause a realignment of the churches in any real structural fashion anytime soon? Or do you see any thing that can help us transcend our tribal identities where the church can both be strengthened as an institution and also say publicly we are going to leaven our discourse we are going to commit to being for something rather than just upset or aggrieved i think that the occasion that brings that about is actually this particular moment in history if we understand it rightly and name it rightly the problem with what I call defensive against, relevance to, and purity from, those paradigms of engaging the world is that they all were formed in response to modernity. We're in a postmodern moment. What unites us actually is far greater in a mm -hmm. postmodern, post-enlightenment moment than what divides us. But we have to understand it, that that's what's going on, and we have to name it. And we haven't named it yet. My shorthand, I think we're in the age of Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. But whatever we call it, if we understand that the power to define reality, the power to name things, is the power to give life or death. And in a world in which instrumental power is the dominant public logic, public logic, that naming will create a world that does not bend toward justice, toward freedom, toward life, toward vitality, toward health. It will bend in the opposite directions. And part of the problem is because Christians haven't understood this, they are participating in the very thing that will destroy them. 
that's what they're doing right now. That is the tragedy, the deepest part of this tragedy. In the name of resisting what they rightly see as the degradation of culture in certain respects, they are participating in bringing that about. To come to understand the nature of our moment is to recognize the power of the gospel as a vision of incarnational love in a world in which love is increasingly absent. It's just... And to understand how that plays out in every sphere of our lives, beginning with the church, but emanating from that into every sphere. I'm fond of quoting Philip Reef that we need to be creating a refuge of human flourishing for the refugees of our cultureless society. Cultureless? Cultureless. Shelter from the storm? End with Dylan? Something like that. <laughs> it's, um, it is, this is a defining moment. Yep. And if we see it as such, I think we have the opportunity to rediscover ourselves as Christians for the church to rediscover itself as a church mm -hmm. and the important role that it plays the side of heaven and mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, reflecting the love of God in this world. Thanks, James. That's a good place to end. future episodes of the show, we'll continue to work out what faithful presence looks like, speaking with people in a variety of fields, from education to technology to philanthropy to fighting sex trafficking. We're excited about what's ahead, and we encourage you to stay with us. In fact, the next two episodes of the show are already available. We'll have more episodes coming next week. Vocation in the Common Good is a production of New City Commons and the Narrativo Group. This episode was produced by Mike Cosper and Philip Lorish. It was edited by T.J. Hester, and it was mixed by Mark Owens. Check out our next couple of episodes, and we'll see you next week.